BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 89 of the Bowery Boys. The Chelsea Hotel. <clears throat> Tom. I, I mean, I mean the Hotel Chelsea. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, and I am back with... Tom Myers. It's great to be here, Greg. I, I love that we're just cracking ourselves up in that intro. <laughs> well, as you know, Tom has been away for the past few weeks. And where exactly did you go? Well, I was over in France, actually, checking out hotels for Eurocheapo.com. <laughs> Our sponsor, of course. Right. Um, and since, of course, you were over there looking at all sorts of different hotels, dozens of hotels, I thought, Mostly well... Mostly cheap hotels, yeah. Well, I'm sure you have no problem coming back to New York and talking about a hotel. No, in fact, I love them. And we're not just talking about any hotel tonight. We're talking about one of the most famous hotels, notorious hotels, celebrated hotels in New York City that is still in operation. That would be the Chelsea Hotel, or as they like to be called... The Hotel Chelsea. Now, I do, who calls it the Hotel Chelsea? I do find that just rearranging those words just adds a little elegance to oh, it, yeah. doesn't it? Like the Hotel Plaza. Why didn't they think of that? <laughs> but as, we'll, as you'll see, this hotel is not exactly known for its elegance, but it's known for a lot more things and a lot more iconic things. And tonight we'll be telling the story about the history of that hotel, but also goes into the history of the neighborhood of Chelsea, but then we're really going to spend some time celebrating the people who have lived in this hotel. As I read in one source, the Chelsea Hotel is, quote, the Tower of Babel of creativity and bad behavior. And I also mm. have to quote something else from one of my favorite history authors, Sarah Vowell. From The Daily Show? She's on the da yeah, she's on The Daily Show D quite Does she frequently. live in the Chelsea Hotel? Um, she doesn't, but she wrote, she wrote about it extensively. This is how she describes it, quote, There are two statues of liberty in New York, one for immigrants out in New York Harbor and one for weirdos on West 23rd Street. <laughs> Give me your junkies, your geniuses, your men in eye makeup yearning to lay low. <laughs> so that's, Sarah, that's how Sarah describes it. But this is a story of how a classic New York building with a very traditional usage, at least has, as it was first intended, was refigured as a center of counterculture and a wellspring for artists, writers, and musicians. And of course, like any good New York landmark, it's not without its own controversies, some which live on to this day. So join us as we check in to the history behind the Hotel Chelsea. <laughs> Some lovely music 
there, Tom. Since you're back in town, maybe mm-hmm. a little disoriented, it's, I think it's appropriate if you situate us to the where the Chelsea Hotel is. Okay, so the Hotel Chelsea is a hotel and residence, and it's located at 222 West 23rd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues uh, on the south side of the street. The building is immediately recognizable. It's a 12-story red brick building designed in the Victorian Gothic style with wrought iron balconies on almost every floor and a roof that is sort of crowned with some turrets and gables and such. It essentially looks like nothing else in the neighborhood. Or at least on the block. It has 400 units inside that building, Greg. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's the situation of the Hotel Chelsea. In order to launch into the history of the building, mm-hmm. I need to begin, actually, by talking about the neighborhood of Chelsea. Because in a way, it sort of creates the reasons for the Chelsea Hotel's existence. Sure. You know, well, first of all, let's start with the first question that's probably on everybody's mind. Why Chelsea? Why is it named Chelsea. If you're scratching your head, well, it must be have some British reason, maybe. Right. Of course, the Chelsea neighborhood in London. You would be indirectly correct. We're going to go back to the story, not back to the Dutch. We're not going to go back that far. We'll go to the British era. You mean Peter Stuyvesant didn't have a niece named Chelsea? No, there was no Chelsea Stuyvesant, unfortunately. The um, All of this various farmland up here, it's a very quiet area, of course. When the British took over Manhattan, they divvied up all this acreage to create all of these large estates for British citizens. In fact, it was actually quite trendy for all these well-to-do English citizens to begin scooping up all this property so that they could then plant down a gigantic mansion that they would live at and would very nice and lavish well outside of town, of course. Because it was a couple miles north of the town at the time. Yeah, I mean, they were really like too refined to really be dealing with this growing city. Um, and It was very crowded. So it was nice to have your own little place out in the relative wilderness of the middle of Manhattan. <laughs> now, the British man that we'll be talking about here is his name is Captain Thomas Clark. He was one of the wealthier British to settle in Manhattan, actually. Um, in 1715, he bought a plot of land that would today be between 8th Avenue and 10th Avenue and 14th Street up to 29th Street. Um, by this time, he was retired from the Navy, so he called his land Chelsea. He chose that name out of homage to the London Royal Chelsea Hospital in England, which was for elderly soldiers. Wow, so the neighborhood is actually named after a hospital. Yes, which was in Chelsea, but specifically because of this particular hospital. Now, the original house that was on this land actually burnt down during the Revolution in 1776, but Clark's widow actually rebuilt it, and it would be around the corner of 23rd and 9th Avenue is where the original home, the old Chelsea Mansion, would be there. This land would be in his family for more than 100 years. The Clark family would also have these very strong connections to Columbia University, believe it or not. Thomas Clark's son, Benjamin Moore, was the president of Columbia. This is not the Benjamin Moore as in the the paint. paint. No. This is not the, the paint Benjamin Moore, but another guy. Benjamin Moore's son, who's basically the father of the neighborhood of Chelsea, if you ask me, in my opinion, his name is Clement Clark Moore. He was also a president of Columbia. He's actually best known in pop culture history as being the man who wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas. Ah, that Clement Clark Moore. That, Cle- exactly. I knew you uh, had his name at the tip of your tongue. Now, during the commissioner's plan, you know, in 18 when they 
cut up the entire island of Manhattan into little squares that would, of course, become our modern blocks. They ran Ninth Avenue up through his property. He was very perturbed at this at first, but then decided that this was a good way to make money. So he ended up selling off plots of his land to very wealthy residents. And he, he handpicked them because he didn't want just any old people living on these plots. He wanted it to be a proper neighborhood. He was, of course, a very religious man. And in fact, to keep the neighborhood sort of on the, quote, up and up, if you will, one block, which happened to also be his apple orchard, he gave to a theological seminary, which is still standing there today. And still very much on the up and up. And Yes. I mean, it's a gorgeous neighborhood and beautiful building. He also gave another block to the St. Peter's Episcopal Church. So, you know, he wanted the neighborhood to have a certain class to it. Did he also give one block to Rawhide and Barracuda? <laughs> if he only knew the what was coming, of, the, what was coming. If, um, up on 23rd Street, believe it or not, he would build an entire row of Greek revival townhouses. It would be nicknamed, of course, Millionaire's Row because it would be uh, one of the toniest areas of the city. Now, his timing was rather right to be building all this stuff because, of course, we're talking about the mid-19th century by this time, and culture and wealth are moving uptown via Fifth Avenue, of course. Amazingly, by the 1880s, the neighborhood along 23rd Street on the east side, but then some of it would bleed over west as well, would actually become the theater district of New York, the proto-Broadway, actually. Over on the Gramercy Park side, that far over? Over, like, the center around, like, Madison Square, like from mm-hmm. Madison, Square, Madison Square Garden, of course, being sort of part sure. of all of these entertainment complexes that would be there. For instance, on 23rd and 8th Avenue. Now, can you picture the, what's maybe standing there today? Uh, the Dallas Barbecue in yes. the movie theater? Well, there's a, the Dallas Barbecue, that corner, the right, northwest sure. corner. Um, and, you know, we love the Dallas Barbecue. Mm, Texas size. But there used to be the Grand Opera House used to stand on that very spot. It was a 2,000-seat theater, and it was opened in 1868. It stood there until 1960, actually. So this pushed the barrier of the theater district that far west. Now, over on 6th and 23rd, Edwin Booth, of course, the great actor, but brother, of John Wilkes Booth had a theater that he opened in 1880 and actually the famous actress Sarah Bernhardt, this was the first place that she ever performed in New York. So this is just to illustrate that this was the Broadway of the day. But as we know, within 20 years, they would, of course, crawl up to 42nd Street and the wealth would crawl up out of this neighborhood and continue its march upwards up into the Upper East Side and, of course, to other places. So what's happening to this neighborhood? You also you have, first of all, the Chelsea Piers are being built along the edge of the water. This neighborhood became a working-class neighborhood. The townhouses around would soon become boarding houses. So the neighborhood, it just sort of settles back into normal, a sort of normal, everyday New York neighborhood, if you will. Of course, then by the 1920s, all these major apartment high-rises would open all over the place, like the London Terrace and many many others around the neighborhood. But that will save that for a Chelsea podcast. Back to... Wait, this isn't the Chelsea podcast? (laughs) 
we'll save that for a strictly Chelsea neighborhood podcast. Ah, but, okay. but that is a great introduction to a Chelsea podcast <laughs> yes, that's, because that's, I yes. really learned a lot. We'll just cut and paste it. But to back up here to how the neighborhood was in the 1880s and the 1890s, we're in, about to embark on the journey, the beginnings of the Hotel Chelsea. And to understand the Hotel Chelsea, we also have to understand that during this period, there was a growing acceptance for upper class, upperly mobile New Yorkers to live in apartment buildings. Remember that at the end of the 19th century, the big fancy families were building big fancy mansions all along Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue and Midtown. And these would just be for their families, and they would be like multi-floor oh, yeah. buildings. Gorgeous, but they would also be extremely expensive to build, and they would in- require an entire staff of servants and butlers and maids and, and cooks and gardeners to, to run the place, to keep it even functional. And these fancy families were not always in New York. They had other residents as well. So these were extraordinarily expensive to run. In the later part of the 19th century, it became acceptable and even fashionable for rich people to move into apartment buildings as long as they still had lavish apartments. What made the Hotel Chelsea different, Greg, Mm -hmm. was that a man came along with a new plan. A Philip Hubert came along, a French immigrant who was an architect, came up with this idea of the cooperative apartment building. This would be a place where the tenants actually pool their money together, they buy stock in the company, and then they own that percentage of the building are also liable for that percentage of the taxes and expenses and such. So, well, there's thousands of co-ops in New York today. You couldn't have a New York without the co-op. No, I mean, this is a really big deal that Hubert invented the co-op, basically. But it it was revolutionary at the time. It was exclusive living because the the buyers also had a say in who else would be able to buy into that building in the future, you know, who people could sell to. They were only allowing certain types of people to buy into the buildings in the first place. That was part of the allure. Well, you still have a vestige of that even with today's co-ops of, of horror stories of, of uh, applications and sitting in front of boards of people. and Right. We have to protect the value of the building. That goes back to Philip Hubert. One big advantage of this was that the staff would be employed, for the most part, by the building. You would have elevator men, front desk people, even manning kitchens uh, employed by the group as a whole. Now, many families moving into these places wanted to keep up with their own neighbors, so they had their own staff oh, sure, right, in, their, right. in their apartment. So throughout the 1880s, many of these cooperative apartment buildings shot up around the city. And shot up, they did, because they were now being built at heights of 8, 10, 12 stories They were often decorated with really imposing fancy facades with all kinds of brickwork, balconies, gables, and turrets and such. If you walk around Gramercy Park, for Mm -hmm. instance, there's a couple of these buildings there, and they're extremely ornate. You might be thinking of the Gramercy, which was built Uh in 1883. There was the Berkshire, built in 1883 as well. Edward Clark's Dakota apartment Uh, building. Yes, sure. We've talked about that one before. Right. We have a podcast from the first season on the Dakota. Built in 1884. The Rembrandt, which is up on 57th Street. The Knickerbocker at 28th and 5th. These were all apartment buildings uh, that were built in the same style at the same period. So it's not a big surprise then that the Chelsea Hotel was built in 1883, 
opened one year later in 1884, and it was just as chic as the rest, with its great red brick, its wrought iron balconies, and the whole work. And this would have been the Chelsea Apartments at this time, or the, clearly not the hotel. Excellent point, Greg. Excuse me. So the Chelsea opened in 1884, and it had two and four bedroom apartments, many with wood-burning fireplaces, great layouts, salons, the whole thing. And many of these details still exist in the apartments today and in many of the hotel rooms that are there today. Another thing that it offered, which I found curious and interesting, was soundproofed walls. It's almost as if they knew that a hundred years later they would have Bob pu- Dylan punk bands <laughs> playing in the rooms. It's almost like presciently. Right. They're like, we know electric guitars are going to be invented and used in the building. Right. Now, beyond these apartments, it was also packed with amenities. There was a barber shop, a restaurant, roof gardens, artist studios, which were up Uh at the roof level. Here's how it was divvied up. There Mm -hmm. were 100 apartments in the entire building. Okay. Today, there are 400. 400, which means something happened. 70 were owned by the board, and 30 were rental units. The apartments cost between $7,000 and $10,000. There were 10 apartments per floor, most with two bedrooms, some with four. And right away, you know, when it opened, there were some notable residents from the early days. Henry Abbey, who was a theatrical producer, and Rufus Zogbaum, who was a journalist for Harper's Magazine, was a resident at the Chelsea. So here we have a journalist and we have a theater producer. We seem to be on the right track. Yeah, it makes sense around this neighborhood. Now, the same year that Hubert moved into the Chelsea in 1885, the city passed new ordinances that restricted the height of new construction. And with that, the era of the co-op seemed to be sort of dwindling, or at least this first aggressive push. We were also heading into some financially tricky times, weren't we? On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This, with these neighborhood changes, this building was just not, was not looking as attractive, so they were having a harder time getting people into the building. The changes meaning when people were when the theaters were moving up to Times Square, where it was right. becoming more middle class. Right, and when this the wealthy were were moving further uptown, it wasn't quite as fashionable to live here anymore. And I mean, you see this today with um, with all these new condos and things that are opening up. They start as such lofty co-op condos, and then, of course, they have to turn into rental units in order to really turn a buck, mm-hmm. turn a profit. 
This is exactly what happens at the Chelsea Hotel in 1900. They have to turn them all into re- rental units. Right, because the co-op board was actually dissolved. And eventually, in, but in five years, in 1905, the entire building just ends up becoming a hotel. The definition of hotel, as the Chelsea d- defines it, is a little different than as what we may describe our common hotel today. Right, because when it became the hotel in 1905, it was also taking on long-term residence. And mm-hmm. this was that early 20th century hotel-as-residence movement that is so romanticized. But what's interesting is these large apartments you you were talking about, these 100 lavish apartments. Well, you know, they could make more money if they weren't so darn big because you could just break them up. So what happens is a lot of these larger apartments become just single units. In one sense, the grandeur of this is really gone at this time period because the rooms are cut up and you lose that original magic. But in another, what's interesting now is the rooms are all really one of a kind. It's not like a cookie cutter room if you go to like, you know, a Ramada or whatever, where every room looks exactly alike. In the Chelsea, each room is just slightly different. So as the wealthy move out, move up, um, the people who move in are those who couldn't afford it before, but maybe were already in that neighborhood and already knew the building. So artists, actors, creative types Mm -hmm. slowly began to move into the Chelsea. It turns into a place where all different kinds of people would go. For instance, some of the survivors of the Titanic stayed here because, you know, the Titanic was actually supposed to dock over Chelsea Piers, not so far away. A little bit later in the 40s, a lot of World War II refugees would stay here. As you can tell, the types of people who are moving here would not be the ones who would have even been considered to be occupants just a couple decades previous. But at the same time, you're saying that the people who were long-term residents of the hotel and moving in were sort of counterculture artists, people who may not have been able to afford something. It was sort of like a, it was almost in a way a spillover from the village. In the 1940s, it was actually acquired by an investment group that was led by three different names. Keep these names in mind because they're going to pop up later. Joseph Gross, Julius Krauss, and David Bard. Mm -hmm. So they became partners in this hotel. And they all actually managed the hotel together until the 1970s. In 1957, David's son Stanley came into the business and would actually be, end up being a manager in 1964. I want to, I'm singling him out because he would basically be in charge of the place for over 50 years. And he would define what we consider the, the image and the, the glamour of what the Chelsea Hotel right. is today. This is Stanley Bard, and he remained the manager until 2007. Yes, for a really long time. I mean, a bard in many senses, because he was a he helped create the Chelsea Hotel as a cornerstone of counterculture. Unlike a lot of landlords of, and owners of different places, he actually lived in the Chelsea himself. He actually became part of the artistic culture that was flowering around him, and he was you know, monitoring it, controlling it, but he was also very aware and respectful of people's privacy. He helped develop this sort of community of residents who lived there, and he was often quite lax with them about their payments. You know, some people would fall behind on rent, and he was lenient or even allowed them to barter, uh, taking on artwork in lieu of payments, which is, I don't think, a tradition that lives on today. But if you walk (laughs) into the lobby today, you can still see all of this wonderful art that's hanging there. 
What I find kind of incredible is the fact that he could balance all of this and actually make it an operational hotel. It was turning some kind of a profit because it's been open forever. He's been running it forever and still dealing with so many egos, personalities, loud music, drug and alcohol abuse up and down the hallways. However, it's funny. Someone actually asked him in an interview what it would actually take to evict somebody. And he replied, he said, barking dogs. They bother people. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't have anything against dogs in general because all kinds of dogs have lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And other kind of creatures. So we've got the basic history of the hotel down now. Mm -hmm. But what was it really like to be in the hotel? If If you were a resident, what would you encounter when you came home? Well, let's just, for instance, say like the 50s and 60s, because a lot of the celebrities and things we're going to mention are from that era. You know, the inside of the Chelsea, you you walk into that lobby. A lot of the, the walls are covered in artwork, mostly artwork from people who actually stayed at the Chelsea. The centerpiece of the whole hotel is this wrought iron staircase that just goes up through the center. The building itself, in the back of the building, it's actually very quiet and very dark. But, of course, the front of it is very loud and wild. And, of course, all the rooms in the front have those fabulous balconies, balconies, of course. And so it's almost like two different kinds of experiences depending on Mm -hmm. where you're staying. Like, for instance, Dylan Thomas had a room in the back. Mm -hmm. There were basic staff services at the Chelsea Hotel, but there was no room service. However, of course, if you wanted to order a drink or something from downstairs or some food from the El Quixote restaurant, which was downstairs and has been open for many, many, many years, you didn't stay at the Chelsea to sleep. If you wanted to sleep, you know, you checked into the wrong place. It was, you know, almost more like an art collective that you just happened to keep your stuff at. It- now, excuse me, but when you're saying you didn't stay here, it still sounds very much to me like a hotel, but it still was a place where most of the units were being rented by long-term residents. People, right? Yeah, people would live here for decades. So people lived here for decades in a place where they couldn't really sleep very well? What let's about just, the soundproofing? <laughs> well, let's just say, again, it, it's not an old folks' home. Okay. Um, they're not living here for calm and comfort. They're living here for excitement and energy. Mm-hmm. It's for a very particular type of person that, has to li- that wants to live at the Chelsea. Let's just say, as an example, this woman named Aurelia, she was the great-granddaughter of Charlie Chaplin. When she talks about the Chelsea, she, she says, quote, I present my palace it was the first place I ever felt at home. Mm. Um, Arthur Miller describes it as a scary, optimistic chaos, which predicted the hip future. And at the same time, the feel of a massive, old-fashioned, sheltering family. So again, it's an undefinable person right, who really it, fits in. It was both progressive in that it had this kind of crazy, artsy, nervous energy. And at the same time... It had the sheltering soul of a grand hotel. I think it was two eras in one. You know, it was because you had all these permanent residents and you had a lot of people who were just passing through. It created this mix of permanence and also of movement. It it seemed like people stayed there forever as a, a fixture of the Chelsea. And at the same time, like trends and fashion would go through it at equal speed. Now, of course, naturally, the rooms where these people would stay would express all that individuality and creativity. As I said, the rooms would be a little oddly shaped, each one a little bit different than the other. The people staying there would decorate their walls with, in all manner of ways, huge amounts of clutter. Of course, if people are staying there for decades, that clutter can mean like stacks of 
paintings, manuscripts, instruments, or in other cases can be completely barren room <laughs> with just like one single bed. You would have like like on the second floor, you'd have a millionaire living right next door to somebody who was barely scraping by and didn't have any money. But, you know, again, he was paying on commission, donating a piece of artwork. And it wasn't easy to get one of these apartments. You couldn't just ask your realtor to call up the Hotel Chelsea's front <laughs> desk and ask just talk to Stanley Bard and try to rent something out. You had to have a connection, be introduced to Stanley, and fit in. I think that Stanley understood who would probably fit in. And it was a weird mix of people from the art world, but also people like hairstylists and even accountants and business people. They lived at the Chelsea as well. It's just amazing to think that, like, if you lived there, say you were stumbling home late at night, fumbling with your keys, walking down the hall, and you might see Janis Joplin sitting there smoking a joint. Um, In the lobby. And So can we talk about who lived there and who stayed there? Yes, but I should mention that in 1966, because I feel like this is really part of the history of the whole hotel and really defines it by this time, Andy Warhol made a film here called Chelsea Girls. It's actually an extremely rare film. It was shot in many rooms throughout the hotel. And what's amazing is he sort of, you know, by this time, he and the factory were very well-known downtown celebrities. And they added this sort of extra dimension of danger and glamour and sensation to the Chelsea. It sort of boosted its reputation mm -hmm. even more. Its notoriety. Yes. So it was, it was morphing into something completely different, of course, by the 60s. So we're up through the 60s. We get the Chelsea Hotel. And now if we could just flip back, if we were at the front desk and we could flip back through the guest registry. Exactly. You can see the, the pages mechanically slipping through time. Right. right. We're going to actually look back around 1905. Mark Twain passed through 1907. O. Henry himself wow. stayed for some period of time. O. Henry reportedly stayed there uh, under an assumed name to uh, avoid bill collectors. <laughs> In the 1930s, Thomas Wolfe would stay there where he wrote, You Can't Go Home Again at the hotel. He was enormous, six foot seven inches tall. He reportedly wrote while leaning up against the fridge with the, uh, the manuscript on top of the refrigerator. Wow, he was that tall. Wow, in his room. Yes, it apparently had a kitchenette. There are probably some rooms he couldn't have even fit in. <laughs> right. Skipping ahead to 1953. Now, Dylan Thomas spent an evening in 1953 down at the White Horse Tavern mm -hmm. where he threw back, quote, 18 straight whiskeys. That's his quote went back up to his room at the Hotel Chelsea, fell into a coma, and then died at the age of 39 uh, nearby in St. Vincent's Hospital. I mean, so, you, you can almost take a walking tour of his final moments. No, on to the 60s. I mean, there were the thing is, it's like there's literally so many famous writers and artists and thinkers that stayed here that it's, it would almost be easier to make a list of people who didn't Who haven't here. passed through. So yeah. in the 60s, Arthur Miller stayed here after his divorce with Marilyn Monroe, and he wrote a short story called The Chelsea Effect, which described life here at the Chelsea. He stayed there for quite a time, and when he moved out, a dentist moved in, and there was actually a small dentistry in the Chelsea for people who were staying there and who needed a dentist. And wow, you got to the roots of that story. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that was like pulling teeth there, Tom. Um, anyway, like um, pulp fiction. but a lot of... <laughs> 
A lot of famous writers stayed here and created some of their best-known works. Arthur C. Clarke, for instance, wrote 2001, Space Odyssey. Incredible. I mean, at the, at the Chelsea Hotel. Um, and William, had conversations with Arthur Miller over coffee. It's unbelievable. William Burroughs, of course, was, stayed here, wrote The Third Mind here. Everyone says right, that— Right, he lived here in the yeah, mid-60s. he lived here. Um, Two other writers who actually have plaques in front of the main the main hall, Brendan Behan, who was, of course, drunk the whole time that he was here, but he actually wrote one of his famous stories, um, Brendan Behan's New York. Charles Jackson, who wrote a very famous story called The Lost Weekend about alcoholism, actually committed suicide in his room in 1968. A lot of famous artists and writers would spend their last years here at the Chelsea, but just as many would literally spend their, their final moments minutes, here. Yeah. On a lighter note, however, um, a lot of musicians, of course, came and went through here. Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, as I previously mentioned, uh, Jefferson Airplane. Leonard Cohen. Uh, who actually wrote a song about the Chelsea Hotel. It's called the Chelsea Hotel. And um, it was actually dedicated to Miss Joplin, who actually he, he hit on in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> Patty Smith would, um, would often show up here with no less than artist Robert Maplethorpe. And they would actually hang out in the lobby to network and like meet other artists. They would wear crazy clothes uh, to get people's attention. And it obviously worked. They're Patty Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. There are other stories that aren't so bright, of course, and I More have to vicious stories. I have to turn to room one hundred, of course, where a certain Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen stayed on October eleventh of nineteen seventy eight. Sid actually woke up from a drug haze and found that his girlfriend was lying there stabbed to death with a hunting knife. He was taken in. He told all these different conflicting stories because, of course, he was still in this drug haze. Like He actually tried to kill himself a few days later. Um, he was later sent to Rikers Island. And then when he got out in, in February of 1979, he lapsed back into his drug problems and died of a heroin overdose. Interestingly, there's a lot of theories that maybe, he, in fact, he didn't kill Nancy, that it might have just been a bad drug deal Gone wrong, and he was so completely out of it that he oh. didn't even notice it. It's an intriguing mystery, and what's fascinating is that room number one hundred is no longer there because shortly after, shortly after this occurred, they ripped out the walls and made it part of another apartment, mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't become sort of like a sick macabre tourist place. Right. Even in the eighties and nineties, it was still a destination for artists. It was seriously in some states of bad disrepair at this time. However, this didn't stop Madonna in the early 90s to set certain parts of her legendary book, Sex, in some, some of the rooms of the Chelsea Hotel. I didn't know Hotel. that that was shot in the Chelsea. And shot in a few other places as well. You may want to flip through your copy if you have one. <laughs> but then what happens to the neighborhood of Chelsea, which is fascinating, is then by the 90s, it had gone through some hard times. And it was sort of gentrifying and cleaning up a little bit. Most notable Notably, it became, it became the scene of a sort of a gay subculture. I've the, heard that. The Chelsea scene and became the center of gay culture in New York during the 90s. But I think even more important, of course, to things that happen today, it's the center of art uh, in New York. It sort of has usurped Soho right. as I mean, the center of art galleries. And, and they're all on the west side, along the west Chelsea. But um, it's And I'm sure that some listeners right now, some eyebrows have been raised. Um, 
But I think that most would admit that it's certainly giving Soho and other areas a run for their money. It's just – it's become such a – it's a different place, uh, fundamentally a different neighborhood. And so because of that, the fortunes of the Chelsea Hotel itself have also changed, some for the best, some not so good. Well, we mentioned before that Stanley Bard was the manager of the hotel for decades up until 2007. What happened in 2007? He was thrown out. Remember there were those – back in the 40s, there were the three people who had bought the um, the investment group who had bought the building. The, Gross, the, Joseph Gross, Julius Krauss, and David Bard. Right, Stanley's father. Well, they still basically owned the building. And as we said, you know, Bard lived in the building. He curated, quote-unquote, its roster mm-hmm. of tenants. His style of management was, you know, somewhat light and sometimes lenient. Well, in June 2007, Marlene Krauss, who's the daughter of Julius, and David Elder, who's the grandson of Joseph Gross, they decided to come together and overthrow Stanley. So it was a sort of intra-board takeover, a hostile takeover at the Chelsea Hotel in 2007. Shakespearean almost. They replaced him with a hotel management company called BD Hotels New York. This was not a move that was popular with most of the tenants, especially the long-term tenants who had really developed a relationship with Stanley. So let's just say that at this point, the story gets kind of messy, and it's been messy for the past couple of years as this management company tried to run the hotel, and then a year later, they were fired. Other managers were brought in. There were protests that were staged by the residents, including a great banner that was strung from the balcony that said simply, bring back the bards. You couldn't help but notice that if you're walking through Chelsea, it was very striking. And, you know, as we record this podcast in August of 2009, it seems like the management is still a little bit uncertain. So who knows? Um, it's a continuing story, and it's very dramatic. I would actually recommend, if you want to know a lot more, this is we have literally pre- presented the, the bare bones about the Chelsea Hotel, but I would highly recommend that you check out a blog that's done by Ed Hamilton. Um, he wrote a book called The Legends of the Chelsea Hotel, which is a fantastic book of just anecdotes and individual stories of people who lived there and like because he himself lived at the hotel yes exactly um so it's a book but it's also a blog so check that out for a lot more information on the chelsea hotel now of course check out our blog boweryboyspodcast.com for some pictures that illustrate that some of the things and people that we've talked about actually and i will include a couple actual videos um including i think a little snippet of the end Warhol movie. Oh, that's exciting. It's a little bit dull by today's standards, but it's filled with all the glamorous Andy Warhol ladies. So it's fa- it is fascinating from a historical perspective to watch. And I have to say it's exciting, Greg, because we talk about so many topics and places and sites that are no longer with us in New York. The Hotel Chelsea is not only still with us, but it's still a functional hotel and residency. Living and breathing and almost in the same form as it was 40, 50, 60 years ago, right? And over my lunch break today, I rode my bike up to the Hotel Chelsea, went inside, chatted with the guys at the front desk, wasn't allowed to go in and see that magnificent staircase because the management company about a year ago put a bad, bad wall behind the check-in desk 
and there are still very notable actors, photographers, painters, writers there. Suzanne Barsh, for instance. Lives at the Chelsea. She lives at the Chelsea. And so many other names. I can't even, can't even start with. We talk about a lot of things on this podcast, but I can say without hesitation that the Chelsea Hotel, or rather the Hotel Chelsea, is one of a kind. Well, thank you very much for listening. A couple announcements to make. The f- I will not have a solo show in two weeks. So the next podcast will, I'm sorry to say, will be next month at this time. I'm working on a lot of other Barry Boys related things, and I will need that extra time in order to work on some of them. So you'll, you won't hear from us again for another month. Which is a great time to dive into the back catalog from season one. Which is available on iTunes under NYC History Barry Boys Archives where we have a lot of our old podcasts with actual images that pop up on your little on your device, whatever you're listening to. Our second announcement, we're planning our podcast schedule for the winter. And I know we do a lot of podcasts on Manhattan, and we do a lot of podcasts on Brooklyn. But the other three boroughs, we haven't really covered that much. So we want to we come up with a couple really good full-length podcasts on topics and landmarks in either of those three boroughs. So if you have any suggestions at all, just email us. So thanks again for joining us as we checked out the history behind the Hotel Chelsea. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.